Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Bunk, the improvised game show on IFC every Friday at 10.30, right after Comedy Bang Bang. It's a game show where comedians come to play improv comics, play for inane prizes and non-charitable causes. Um, it's totally improvised, hosted by Kurt Brownholer. It's a very funny show. They have crazy categories like whose crotch is hotter, which is not something you see on Jeopardy. Um, shame that puppy, unstamp the tramp. Uh, anyway, it's called Bunk. It's on 1030 on Friday evenings on IFC, right after Comedy Bang Bang. IFC continues to bring you just the most interesting and innovative stuff on television. Um, so check out Bunk, 1030, Friday IFC. Um, here is today's podcast. It's another one from the ATX Television Festival, which was this past June. Um, the name of this panel was Fantasy, TV Fantasy Goes Mainstream. What it wound up being was a bunch of genre nerds talking about genre TV. Uh, it is mostly old friends of ours from the podcast, Jane Esmondson, Jose Molina, Ben Edlund, uh, an awesome group of people, Richard Haddam. Um, and then, you know, all of this ATX festival was an awesome group of people. Uh, I've talked about it before, but if you want to find out more about the ATX television festival, best place to go is facebook.com slash ATX festival. I also have to thank, um, a volunteer at the festival, Kelsey Fleming, who hung out all day in one of the rooms recording all of these podcasts. And she did a great job and I am very thankful to her for doing them. Uh, as you should be, because we get to bring them to you. Um, there may be a few uh, audio issues on this where people are kind of talking off mic, mostly at the beginning. Um, there were not enough mics for everyone, so they kind of had to pass them around a little bit. But I'm pretty sure you can hear everybody, and certainly you can fill in the gaps where you don't. Um, for future podcasts, let me know what you want to hear. The best way to get in touch with me is also on Facebook. Go and like the Nerdist Writers panel. Uh, go to facebook.com slash Nerdist Writers panel. Um, and, and tell me who you want to hear on these panels. You know, I've, I've taken your, your recommendations to heart. On August 19th in Los Angeles, we're doing a Key and Peel panel, panel with Keegan-Michael Key and uh, Jordan Peele, and as many of their writers as will fit in the room. I think we've got all of them. Uh, that's at 5 p.m. on August 19th, and then the week after that, we're doing an overlooked or underrated television panel uh, since I discovered the TV show Awkward, my new favorite show on MTV. Um, so we have the creator of Awkward. We have a writer from NBC's Parenthood, which is my other favorite uh, obsession these days uh, just tore through the first three seasons two seasons whatever it was 35 episodes um and we'll have some other people joining that um and you go to i think you go to the meltdown site for tickets to that but please come out there that those two sundays the 19th and 26th in los angeles um and finally the other big news my real show the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio, is coming to New York. It's our first time on the East Coast. Uh, we really It's a big show. It's hard to travel with. We've only been to San Francisco with it. Um, but it's going to be incredibly fun. So if you're in New York, please come out to the Thrilling Adventure Hour Sunday, September 30th 
at The Bell House in Brooklyn. The website is thebellhouseny.com. Uh, go to their calendar, get tickets. We've got Paul F. Tompkins, Paget Brewster, John Hodgman, Busy Phillips, James Urbaniak, Mark Evan Jackson, all of the usual uh, folks who do the show, which we're so excited to bring it to New York and share it with you guys. And hopefully if the New York show is a success, we'll get to bring it to other cities um, and maybe even other countries. But, you know, we've got to sell out this show and maybe even add another one. So please come out to the Thrilling Adventure Hour uh, at the Bell House in Brooklyn on September 30th. Buy your tickets now. Uh, and while I'm there, I'm going to try to record some uh, writer's panels, if not live ones, at least some one-on-ones. So again, go to the Facebook Nerdist Writer's Panel page. Tell me what New York writers, uh, comic books, television, novels, whatever you want to hear, um, tell me who you want to hear from, and I'll try to track them down for when I'm in New York, because I get there very rarely. All right. Here is the uh, genre writing panel from the ATX Television Festival. But first, the Nerdist noise. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. We're going to go down the line. We're going to start down here with Ben. And uh, tell us who you are and what you've done in genre television so we know that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. I can do that. I'm uh, Ben Edlund, and I've done a number of things in genre television. Actually, I've only done anything in genre television. Um, <laughs> I started by, uh, I did a comic book that became a cartoon called The Tick, which I would consider more like genre Which became a live-action television show, and that got me into primetime television. And then I started to work with, uh, well, over at Stewart Street on um, Firefly. And met him. And then uh, Angel and uh, Point Pleasant and Supernatural. I've been on Supernatural for, I think, 12 years now? I forget. (laughs) Um, Since you gave them your first child. Yeah, no, I gave my first child to who? I forget. Anyway, you go. Uh, I'm Jose Molina. Um, I, I worked on Dark Angel, was my first job, and from then I went to Firefly and spent some time doing boring cop shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, then came back to the genre for, uh, it's not really genre, but it's Nathan Fillion, and so <laughs> that's great. Uh, to, to work on uh, Castle, uh, and I've also been on... Uh, Clone Wars, uh, Haven, uh, Terra Nova, Grimm, and uh, <laughs> look at that, <laughs> Grimm. <laughs> um, and uh, I, this uh, season, I'll be starting work as Kobe on uh, the Vampire Diaries. 
Hey, I'm uh, Richard Haddam. I wrote uh, The Mothman Prophecies. And then uh, I created a show called Miracles on ABC a long time ago. Oh, God bless you. Um, I worked on True Calling with Jane Espenson. And uh, a bunch of worked on Supernatural a lot more briefly than Ben. <laughs> a lot. And then uh, did a few, oh, then I uh, created a show called The Gates, uh, which was on ABC a couple years ago. And then worked on Secret Circle really briefly, and now I'm on Grimm. Hi, I'm Jane Espenson. And I have worked on everything. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I've been doing this for so long I had to write down what I've done. Uh, it started with an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was my first exploration into genre. <laughs> worked on Dinosaurs and Buffy, Angel, Dollhouse, Firefly, True Calling, Battlestar Galactica, Caprica, Once Upon a Time, Game of Thrones, and Husbands. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeff Davis, and I'm really here to meet Jane. Uh, I created a show called Criminal Minds, and I'm uh, the EP on uh, Teen Wolf for MTV. Thank you, guys. We're out of time. <laughs> this is, this, we're talking about some heavy shows here. Uh, you know, you guys have... This group has sort of help define genre television, especially in the past 10 years or so. Um, I'd like to reach back, if we could, uh, and talk about your experience with genre as a consumer of it. You know, when you were growing up, what was the stuff that you were putting in your eyes and ears? Uh, whether it was television or, you know, books, books, or, uh, <laughs> you know, films, what was the stuff that got you interested in genre? And Jeff, let's start with you. Um, actually, one of the first genre shows I watched was uh, The Incredible Hulk. Um, and I would watch it, uh, it was on like Saturdays, I think. Uh, and it was an amazing show. It was like The Fugitive, except he would turn huge and green. Um, so I, uh, I was a huge comic book kid. Um, I actually wanted to be a comic book artist uh, when I was a kid. Uh, and then started writing, thinking I would write my own. And then got into screenplays. Um, I kind of grew up like uh, Quentin Tarantino. I was in a, uh, I had a, a, a job at a video store for years and years, and I would I would bring home all the free movies I could get and watch them uh, on the weekends. So that's how I kind of got into it. Um, but it's shows like The Twilight Zone, um, great genre stuff like Night Gallery as well. Um, how did you find this stuff? I mean, you're you're a young guy. I, I'm actually I look younger than I am. <laughs> I always get that. No, no. Um, on TV, Saturday afternoons. No, just yeah, syndicated yeah, exactly. So, what about you, Jane? Uh, yeah, I also found stuff that wasn't in production. Stuff that was old at my time. Twilight Zone was already old when when I was young, and um, Star Trek. Uh, and in fact, even though I didn't see a lot of Star Trek, it wasn't like being syndicated on my local station with any regularity. But my mom had the Star Trek novels. The Novelize, not novelizations, the, no, the spin-off novels, um, which in the early years were written by genuine sci-fi authors. They weren't like people who'd been brought in. They were like sci-fi authors who wanted to be part of the Star Trek world. So they were really, really good. And so that and a lot of Ray Bradbury 
sort of my introduction to sci-fi. Ray Brad- I was from Iowa. Ray Bradbury was from Iowa. It- and Captain Kirk was from Iowa. It seemed, <laughs> it seemed inevitable. Yeah, I think most of us up here watched a lot of genre, but we watched everything. And we didn't have a choice. There were three channels. <laughs> so we, we, we took part in that thing that you know, people today don't know about, which is sitting through a show you don't like for the show you do like. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no. Or, or sitting through what your parents want to watch because there's no second TV. And you know, we didn't have a phone. So, so I think, I bet all of us got a weird education just by sitting through a ton of stuff. Some that we loved and some that we just stared at. And it all kind of filtered in. But uh, having said that, uh, Kolshak the Night Stalker pretty much changed my entire life. Um, Trapper John M.D. (laughs) Was the one that I had to sit through having no interest. But Trapper John was on Sundays at 10. And God damn it, if I wasn't going to milk every tiny bit of TV out of my weekend that I could. Yeah, oh, that that was like the show you would watch and just feel sick because you knew you had to go to school. Yeah. But it was like, you know, the last refuge. Yeah, you get to hang out with Gonzo Gates in his cool trailer. (laughs) Um... But uh, like Jeff said, uh, Incredible Hulk was a big one for me. Uh, I didn't speak uh, English growing up. And Hulk was really... Yeah. (laughs) This is all being translated through like the Star Trek communicator thing. Um, But so Hulk and Dukes of Hazzard were really easy for me to follow because there was a lot of... And a lot of... Um, so the, those were my, my intro to TV, and then I just sucked it all in, everything I could get my hands on. We, uh, we had, you know, the, the networks, but we also, because we were in Puerto Rico where I grew up, we sort of needed to have cable in order to have access to just the networks. So we had HBO, and we had uh, Showtime when that came out, and we had WGN and TBS. So, you know, and Nick at Night, so I'm well-versed in everything from I Spy to Dobie Gillis to everything. Uh, so in terms of sci-fi, though, uh, I think Hulk definitely was formative. Man from Atlantis was huge in my life. Um, no applause for Man from Atlantis. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. Um, and uh, Star Wars, obviously. And uh, as the, a little bit older, uh, the, the movie that made me go, I got to be involved in this somehow, was uh, Terminator. Right? Uh, Yeah, very similar in that uh, I was raised, in a sense, by TV as a tertiary parent. So I spent a lot of time just staring at it, trying to learn how people interacted. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, like I I remember the first night the Six Million Dollar Man came on because of the ancientness. yeah, and that was crazy. I was too young to watch it, so my brother had to watch it like, and tell me about it, and I was completely convinced because I had gotten some kind of transposition. I thought it was a 6,000-year-old man. And so the story that my brother told me at night of the six-million-dollar man still is one of the most extraordinary genre experiences of my life. It's like it takes place in a cave, and maybe there's a Bigfoot, and then I'm trying to put like this big Moses hair on this 6,000-year-old man, and I'm like, what the... I just thought it was magical. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of like rerun stuff. Learning language, learning human language through TV. That's what I had to do. And um, it's made me a big TV 
fan, I guess. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> um, I, I'll open this up to any of you guys, but, uh, you know, we're sort of living in this... I would say a second golden age of genre television uh, that we haven't really seen since the 50s, I guess. Um, why now, do you suppose? Uh, were you prepared for this question? Uh, <laughs> take a moment and think about it. Meanwhile, you guys get your questions ready. <laughs> uh, but why, you know, why are we ripe for this? Why are we seeing so much uh, horror and sci-fi and fantasy on television right now? Well, I think the question is why, why is it taken... Why not? Why not all the time? Like, it's always... It's, they're always the biggest movies. And there's somehow this notion that, that sci-fi and genre is all right in the movies, but is, is considered secondary or, or, or déclassé on television. That, that networks are like, oh, we don't want to have sci-fi. It's like, well, what, what makes money in the world sci-fi? So I've never quite understood why... I actually met someone at a party last week, uh, and we were talking about Once Upon a Time, and he was like, yeah, I really don't... Like, he's a huge genre fan, like a big sci-fi comic book and movie guy, but he's like, yeah, I don't really think genre on TV mix is. I, I, I don't get why, why we have this in our heads. You know, what's funny is uh, one pitching season, I was told, oh, the networks don't want to hear any uh, pitches with monsters in them. And I, was, and I was like, well, I guess I'm going to cable. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a fear in network television. Um, but I think it's always been around. Uh, it just moves from, from one to the next. I, th- I think it's more prevalent now in cable, probably, mm-hmm. um, even with like Once Upon a Time or, or Grimm uh, this season. Mm-hmm. But uh, like yeah, American Horror it. Story was able to do stuff that uh, network television would be terrified of doing. It was a huge hit. <laughs> I once met, uh, it was uh, out in a job meeting, you know, do I want to go work on this show, go meet the showrunner, and I met the showrunner and said, I'm so glad that you're making a sci-fi show, and he said, oh, wait, stop, don't call it that, I'm not writing sci-fi, I'm writing characters, and I just, I wanted to punch him, like, <laughs> yeah, sci-fi is character, what, what do you think? That spaceship well, yeah, is a character. I mean, yeah, you, like, you weren't making the distinction, and he was right. afraid, but I think people do get afraid because they... they I get afraid. Like, I don't think I like genre TV or genre anything either. <laughs> and, and I get afraid of watching these shows because I'm like, oh, it's going to be confusing and I'm going to have to learn a lot of aliens' names. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's going to be about something other. It's going to be like me rather than, than the minute you get involved writing it. I mean, the instant or watching it. Because, it, and by the way, watching something and writing it, almost the same experience. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're really watching with the critical eye, you're thinking about this character and where they could go and what they could do. So, yeah. So you're, you're, you're automatically just going, oh, well, no, of course. Yeah, it's about people. I mean, you know, Grimm looks weird until you go, oh, I get it. He's a sleazy lawyer and he's a snake. <laughs> oh. It's like Aesop's fables. Oh, you know, and then you're like, and, and but that's what, the good stuff is always like that, and the bad stuff is. I think everyone had. It's like when you get drunk on the wrong alcohol and you can't go back. You know, it's like, no, no, keep that tequila away from me. It's like you have you have you have a bad or a boring genre experience, and then you sort of go, oh yeah, because that's that stuff that's all about you know just goofy aliens and they're separate and it's not about me. But the good stuff and so much of it is good now is it's about you and it's about me one other thing that I think in terms of a a, a why now is 
our capacities, technologically speaking. It used to be kind of a, a like a pretty sort of difficult undertaking in the 70s to go, we're going to make like a spaceship show. And uh, like, you go, yeah, well, they shot on 35 millimeter film. They had models. They had, they had to do, I mean, like Battlestar Galactica was an insane epic to do on television. It was crazy. So now you can, I mean, there, I saw one YouTube thing. It just showed how much green screen goes on in TV now. It just was a bunch of clips of shots that you thought were just people walking down the street. And then the fact that they're in front of green screen, and that's just to do kind of straight up, like just to, oh, we can't be in Texas, so we'll pretend we're in Texas with yeah. a green screen. But all of these things are creating. We can basically dream on on a screen now with almost no interruption of like suspension of disbelief. It's just at a, at this time, the generation of extraordinary reality is so um, facile. It's fantastic. It's great. I don't even have the budget for that, by the way. Oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, I'm not saying, oh, do you have a green screen? Oh, no. Our green, our green screen shows up green. Really? Yeah. Wow. But you're a Hulk fan, so that's okay. Uh, I am sort of curious about that. You know, you guys, most of you have worked in both network and cable, and what Ben is talking about is, you know, I mean, that's, that's a really good point, and it is part of the reason that genre TV has been pushed forward, uh, pushed to the forefront, but what are the kind of restrictions you guys face uh, either on a network show or on a cable show compared to a network show? Mine is definitely budgetary. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, I, I spend so much time uh, as a showrunner um, looking at every penny on the show, actually. I go through every uh, visual effects list and we cut shots left and right and so that we can afford it. And an ambitious show for... We're very MTV. ambitious, yeah. And the fact that we're able to get what, what we're able to get on our budget is extraordinary and the reason I don't sleep. Um, <laughs> but it's hard, yeah. And uh, we do a lot of darkening down and color correction. We do a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, lighting effects. Um, we we're, we're one of the few shows that actually use practical uh, makeup, um, so Which it's difficult. Something that's yeah, really cool about it. I mean, that's something I like about the show a lot. Yeah, and I'm I'm known to like grab the paintbrush right out of the makeup artist's hands. <laughs> it's that hands-on for me. Wow. So, um, and uh, I actually. There are pictures of me trimming the werewolf makeup hair in the <laughs> hair and makeup trailer, uh, right on the actors. Uh, but it's tough, and we—I—I uh, I love the fact though that uh, our CGI company, which is Eden Effects, and they've worked on big budget stuff too. They did—they did Lost for years and years. Um, they're artists themselves, and what I try to do is leave a lot of stuff up to them and say, "What do you think is cool?" So you get them involved, and then you get free shit. It's awesome. So. <laughs> They, they throw in shots for free that are like $5,000. So. Well, what I found is that the more, um, the more money you have, especially in effects, <clears throat> the more you have someone up your ass. Um, <laughs> in terms of... The, the, Where have you been making TV? <laughs> in Hollywood? Um, the, more, the, the more something costs, because, yeah, effects are, go hand-in-hand hand with budget, but the more a show costs, the more a network and a studio and all the ancillary uh, producing partners are going to be really, really worried that the show become a huge hit. Um, and in case you haven't figured it out, I'm talking about Terranova, um, <laughs> which you know was a hugely expensive show that happened to have 12 executive producers. 
Um, and there's no correlation between the expense and the number of executive producers. Not at all. <laughs> they, they were totally pro bono. Yeah. Um, and then on a show like Haven, which has a shoestring budget, we, I mean, we couldn't do, I'm assuming we probably uh, could do the kind of stuff that Jeff can do, which is like, all right, we get three shots for these 42 minutes. Uh, and then we chose wisely, and we told the story around that effect, and we were able to have a lot more freedom to do the kind of story that we wanted to do without having to worry about, uh, well, where's the eye candy? Because with eye candy comes great interference. <laughs> and, uh, ben, I think you can talk about uh, Supernatural a little bit, because while that does have budgetary restrictions, uh, there are other restrictions as well as far as production and you know mm-hmm. and you've directed a few episodes so you can I probably speak to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that every every show is going to have in a sense the same dynamic, which is you begin by envisioning a bunch of stuff with no filters on it, no control, and then you have to translate it into reality. And so every I mean, I Supernatural which has a larger budget probably than a lot of um, cable, mm-hmm. I'm sure of it, but um, it's also we blew up our only standing set last year. <laughs> I don't know what we're thinking. Um, but like, so it's like this weekly road show where you just, it's all, I mean, it's shot up in Vancouver. It's got, I mean, it's just a very challenging thing. And then you make the choices necessary to, to achieve some level of production. I mean, like, um, you know, I think it's a, supernatural, I would say, gets... It's the same strategy. It gets a lot up on the air by avoiding things Mm -hmm. and looking away at certain kind of key moments and stuff. And the more you do that, unless, I mean, you know, I've worked on things like Angel and um, Angel to me was the opposite, which was very interesting. It was like it turned the camera right on the rubber and Mm -hmm. said, this is the heart of it. Look at these horns. We're trying to turn off the sun. We're turning off the sun this week. <laughs> and that was really rocking. But that was like, it's an aesthetic that allows you maybe to guide your way through this because you just choose your aesthetic. And if you stick with it, then you're, it's like engineering, premeditatively engineering for effect. I don't know. Now I feel like I'm rambling. Continue. Jane, on, on once, you guys have some of the craziest stuff on network TV, dragons and, yeah. and matte paintings all over the place. Do you find that what I experienced in Terra Nova applies to you guys, that you have a lot of very nervous people going, eh, does it have to be a dragon? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's Could the case. Yeah. Even. I mean, we're, we're. This is the first time I've been on a network hit. I've been on hits and I've been on network shows, but never at the same time. And um, uh, so I, I have to assume that there is big network money, but there's never enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm consulting producer, and and the show shoots in the show shoots in Vancouver, and we don't go up and produce our own episodes. So I'm I am nicely insulated from that. Uh, but I will say, do you remember how Caprica? There's one fewer episode sort of Caprica than they actually ordered. Um, that's because I spent all the money. And they, they literally <laughs> took an episode away from me because I'd spent all our money. <laughs> so I, I certainly, no matter what's going on at Once Upon a Time, they are very smart to keep me away from the money. <laughs> I love that story. You should have taken all the money and just made one really big <laughs> episode. But doesn't it rock? Look at it again. It rocks, man. Four and a half hours. <laughs> it's the avatar of sci <laughs> well, yeah, I just I don't want to comp. I want what I want. I want it to look good. 
Um, before I turn it over to questions from the audience, I'm curious to hear from each of you. Uh, you know, you've gotten to play in your own sandboxes. You've gotten to play in other people's uh, sort of, you know, very rich ones as well. Uh, let's kind of just go down the line here, starting with Jeff, and tell me about the most or a most uh, satisfying or pleasurable uh, moment that you had, whether you know, it was as a writer or being on set or something like that uh, in a genre show? Um, oh, boy. Or we uh, can start with something. Yeah, who, who's got one ready to go? <laughs> yes, yeah, someone else. Richard, you're asking for that good moments, right? <laughs> yeah, because it's I got, one. I got one that's, that, that's kind of good. Um, when we wrote uh, Trash, which is one of the last episodes of uh, Firefly, thank you, um, there were two moments that I remember just vividly in the moment going, this is awesome. Um, and one was uh, Ben and I were standing at Video Village during a scene where we're shooting out of the ship and there's like a desert landscape and uh, Mal, Nathan Fillion, is, is shooting uh, Christina Hendricks, who played Saffron, to make her back away from him. And I, I literally just turned to Ben and I went, I'm standing on a starship while a cowboy shoots a girl because we wrote it. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and it was like, in that moment, I, but like my 12-year-old self just went slap <laughs> in your eyes. Um, and, and that was a great moment. The other great moment was also in that episode, uh, it also in the cargo bay, which is when uh, Nathan Fillion was buck naked. Um, and, and, Nathan, um, and Nathan being the prankster that he is He's like, you wrote this, right? I'm like, yeah, do me a favor And he asked me to do him this favor And he's in his robe and we're ready And the director calls action And he's got his back to camera Takes off the robe Turns to camera And right where the adult bits are I had gotten him a headshot of Joss so, the only thing covering his manhood was a photo of Joss Whedon going. <laughs> and, and that was another one. I just sort of stood there going like, it, like you know the story of Lord Ass Hogan in Stand By Me, where everybody's throwing up and Lord Ass is just going like. <laughs> that was good. Uh, ben. Ben Edlund. That's we, me. We've talked about uh, how Supernatural, and I'm sure some of the other things you've worked on, have sort of pressed the buttons of 13-year-old Ben. Yes. You know, that they're, Oh, they're regrettably, still... <laughs> like a, the worst uncle. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go on. Uh, but can you think of anything specifically uh, that you responded to in that gleeful way? In, in, in my adult experience of having... Um, yeah, having worked on these genre shows. Something specifically. I didn't think this would be a stumper, you yeah, guys. I, no, no, <laughs> I mean, I have, a, I have a note. I mean, like, I have an anecdote. Can I give you my anecdote? Why would you ask me a question? I don't understand. <laughs> I, <laughs> but um, uh, it's not exactly pleasant. It's... But it, I, to me, it's, like, electrifying in terms of what can happen when you start to craft false reality like it, with the I, I when I was writing the tick as a comic book I in my youth I was young and I was like um, I had a, one of my good friends who was like I had very few friends kind of my little D&D &D group and then this guy 
but like we were good friends, and like he, so he would just be forced to watch as I was like like noting and writing and stuff. So he saw me write the comic book, and they kind of grew up together. And like anyway, alongside me became you know, um, but just uh, anyway, this makes no sense. So when I was Why young, I wrote this. Question? I wrote this comic book. It's called the Tick Fuck. Um, uh, and then at the uh, when we got into live action production of the Tick, right. Mm-hmm. This friend of mine, high school friend, he just was going through some time in his own life. And I was like, well, come over here and be a PA on, on this thing because, you know, you, you have nothing to do. So he, but there was a point where, and he brought this anecdote to me, which is why I think it's just strange. He was forced to watch me wa- write it as a young person and then later came to, to L.A. And he, his job was to help Pull Patrick Warburton into a silicone a silicone suit, a 16-pound rubber suit. He had to coat it with KY jelly, <laughs> and he had to pull this monstrosity over this poor man, right? And then like, um, uh, and then he left. He left. He left, a, he left a napkin on my desk that just said sorry. But but the the, the uh, to me the the moment of this thing you create like yeah. you draw it and then there's KY jelly and, there's, and it's like years later and there's just I mean the whole thing is like it's a very interesting little egg to open up and be a part of this is a weird you'd, you'd be surprised dream. how often KY jelly is used in sci-fi television it's real yeah <laughs> on camera and not uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have I have an, uh, a moment actually I uh we're supposed to tweet while we um uh watch the episodes we're supposed to tweet during the episodes MTV asks us to and I'm terrible at it but I like actually reading the tweets that come in and I remember um, the last episode we had started building our audience and people had started getting addicted to it thank god um in episode 12, uh, I remember reading one tweet by this, like, 13-year-old girl, and her tweet was, I literally feel like I can't breathe right now. And it's an audience, immediate audience response that's yeah. absolute pure joy, and I've just sat there and thought to myself, I control the hearts of teenage girls. <laughs> this is unlimited power. More specifically, the pulmonary system. Yeah. Will you stop the respiration? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm... There are, there are other moments, too, where you, uh, in, a, in a cable show especially, you feel like you're, you're back to film school 101, um, where you'll do anything to get the shot. And I work with Russell Mulcahy as well, who directs a lot of the episodes, and he's huge in, in genre. And um, he, he and I will do anything. Like, uh, there was one moment this season where um, a character is supposed to use an automatic syringe and inject uh, one of the other characters uh, and this particular actor faints at needles. And it wasn't even a needle, really. It was just a prop gun. It's an automatic syringe. And I said, all right, fuck it. Give me the wardrobe. I'll do it. And I stepped in front of the camera, and I'm the close-up getting the syringe in my neck. <laughs> so that's how, that's how you do it in cable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and e- even even more of that goes on if you're making a web show. So uh, yeah, mm. so husbands isn't genre, but we just finished husbands season two. We just finished shooting it, and it has some amazing, huge genre stars who I can't reveal yet. Um, I know Deech and Lachman revealed she's she's part of it from Dollhouse, but there's other ones too. And that was that was it for me. It was just sitting there going like, I've in 20 years in TV, I've accumulated some of these amazing friendships where people are willing to come out and and happy to participate and read the script and. 
wanted to be part of it. And so it was that. It was standing behind our little modest monitors on our tiny little set at Husbands going, like, look at the people who are... The, the good people of genre who are happy to come out and do something that is that is that shoestring where yeah I was I and Brad Bell were in there doing shopping for props and and stapling things down and and buying food for the cast and like all that shoestring stuff and to to sort of see what quality you could come up with that was that's huge. That's really cool. Um, you know, everyone sort of touched on it, but there's. And some of you probably want to get into the business, I'm guessing, but there, there's not a day that goes by that I don't and the people I work with don't go, God, I can't believe we're actually getting to do yeah. this. Because there's so much complaining and whining that we do, you know, because that's, you know, just part of it. But um, the first thing, you know, the first TV thing I wrote was a pilot that got made and then got picked up, and that was the show Miracles. The, thank you again. <laughs> I don't know who you are. Oh, thank you. God, I'll meet you right out there. I'll, we'll talk. In, if you a, go to Rich's house, he'll tell you season two, season three. Yeah, because there's not, I, And I'm sure you notice on the DVDs, not quite enough of me involved. <laughs> um, but when we did the pilot, um, you know, it was a, a weird time in my life, but uh, I, I wrote the script. And then they had a list of possible directors. The director was uh, who they got, a, you know, no choice of my own, was my best friend, who was my partner at film school, Matt Reeves. And, and we found ourselves standing on the set with, you know, hundreds of people and a professional crew and a catering truck. And, and I'm saying, 15 years ago, we were in your mother's garage. <laughs> You know, eating Ritz crackers at two in the morning, freezing cold, miserable, and looking at each other with this existential desperation. Like, are, are we ever going to make it? We're never. We're kidding ourselves. We're. Ne this is a a futile dream. It's never going to happen. And we were so terrified at that prospect. I mean, and that's the other thing. You know, when you're terrified that you're not going to work in TV. You, you, you find a way. Um, but anyway, uh, it, it's, it's a great moment anytime you're on a set, anytime you realize that your problems are problems of your choosing, because that's the career you wanted to do. You're super lucky. That's how I feel. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's get questions from you guys. I'm certain you have them. Please remember what I said about questions. <laughs> And, um, they should lilt at the end so we know exactly. that so you know for information. <laughs> also, please <laughs> don't touch the microphone. Hi. You talked earlier about the traditional genre and the, the fantasy and the sci-fi. And the traditional stuff is so displaced. And so many of the new shows like Grimm and Once Upon a Time and Teen Wolf take place in a small town or in Portland or in a high school. Do you think that that has brought a new wave of people to the genre itself, making it a little more relatable perhaps, as opposed to remove like a different time or a planet or something like that? I would say Fairytale Land is a different time and planet, but, uh, yeah. but yes, the fact that we're not in a spaceship, I think a lot of people are turned off by spaceships. I, those people are crazy, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but, but definitely. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, oh, you don't have a I, yeah, I, I can't project like Richard. I was like, um, I think w one of the things we try to do on Teen Wolf, especially, is make sure that normal life is always there. 
Um, that's why we set a lot of stuff in the high school as well. Uh, I think uh, one th reason you see small towns quite a bit is because we can't afford to be in the city. Um, but uh, the other thing is uh, I, I very much prescribe to the Spielberg 80s aesthetic where um, it's single-parent families. Everybody on TV seems rich these days for some reason. So I was hoping to, like, like my characters ride, still ride their bikes to school because they can't afford a car, or they drive their mom's car where the window is broken out and it's, like, replaced by plastic. So it's everything you can do. The more you can do to make... Uh, your characters feel real and like us, the more uh, you'll be frightened for them. And the more yes. we care about the characters, the, well, the, the more you can terrify your audience. I, I mean, <laughs> a absolutely correct, and that is the Stephen King motto. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's just, let's trapped put it in, in a supermarket. A, yeah, trapped in a supermarket, yeah. you know? It's, uh, it's not uh, castles and it's not uh, high-rises. Yeah, everybody in TV seems like they all have these kitchen islands and yes. brass pots and everybody drives a shiny BMW. So that doesn't feel as real to me as, like, a bunch of kids who are, come from single-parent families and are struggling. To that, though, I'll, I'll add the cliche that it really is all about character, whether they are high school kids or time travelers 65 million years in the past. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it, it's all about the people and how they relate to each other, and as long as the people are real, uh, I think you're good. And, uh, you while we're on the topic, and Jose, maybe you want to address this, uh, although Jane, you worked on the show, um, how do we explain the success and the buzz of Game of Thrones? Jose and I had a fight last night. <laughs> I'll back you up. Um, the, I think the success of Game of Thrones is a little bit of what Jeff is talking about, where you've seen fantasy, you're very much like, oh, come hither, and and it's not that, you know, it's it's dirty and it's ugly and it's shitty and there's dirty people. Mm -hmm. It's like that moment in Holy Grail where Arthur is riding <laughs> through the town and someone goes, oh, he must be the king. Oh, why? Well, he doesn't have shit all over. <laughs> um, and, and I think Game of Thrones really turned what is expected of quote-unquote fantasy mm -hmm. on its ear. Um, and despite your insane dislike of dragons, um, you, I don't think it's the dragons that bring uh, Game of Thrones into a special place. It's, it's portraying all these people in a almost Henry V fashion where they don't want this job. They don't want to have to do the things that they do, but they are, there is one noble, decent person, and he's going to try to do the right thing while everybody else is out to get him. And, and you're... It's a soap opera. You're relating to these people on a purely human level. It is also a, um, a very popular novel series. Um, and uh, actually, one of the things I'm so jealous of about HBO is their monstrous budgets. I mean, it's something like, I think they have some, uh, something on the wor on, along the lines of 65 to 70 million to do their 10 episodes, is it, or 9 episodes? Mm. Um, <clears throat> that would be three seasons of Teen Wolf. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and the other thing is uh, um, HBO has literally the best marketing campaigns I've ever seen. 
So the way they marketed it was something like that you can't miss. And in TV, marketing is very huge. But yeah, the, the advantage of having a story all worked out that you know works, where you know that your loose ends are tying up, is like going in and writing it, where they said you're writing the episode that goes from this page to this page. Like, what a, what a wonderful luxury that your, your time in the room isn't spent going like, oh, crap, we set up this thing and it doesn't pay off. Yeah. Like, you know it's going to pay off. Like, that's, that's huge. That takes a lot of the stress out of sure. the job Absolutely. and allows you to spend that time and energy on on making sure these characters who you know work and who you understand fully are brought to life fully on your page. It's a different job. Yeah. Hello. Um, I just wanted to, to point out, like you guys mentioned a lot of the things that influenced you as a child, the things that you watched, and now you guys are here, kind of the cream of the crop of um, you know, that, this drone and television, and I just wanted to know for those that are being influenced by you now that are sitting in front of the television just... Um, absorbing everything and having heart attacks. Um, you know, what advice do you have for all those that are write, that are kind of writing their own things and, and wanting for it to kind of come up in the same um, glory as as all of your shows have? <laughs> I'd say watch watch TV critically and make make little outlines. If you really want to be a TV writer, the best thing to do is recreate the outline we wrote the episode from as you're watching the episode. Instead of absorbing a bunch of rules from a book about drama structure, abstract them from the outlines you're creating because yeah. that's all the books did. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's what you have to do. It's, it, I wish they would teach writing the way they teach biology with a lot of dissection. Yes. You know? I, and, and you guys can do it now, and we couldn't. I mean, I, I'm from the generation that put the cassette recorder near the TV so I could tape record the theme song to one day at a time. <laughs> You guys can buy DVDs and pause and go, okay, opening scene, what happened? And re- you know, and just break it down and go, okay, and then think like an editor. Go, I have to cut five minutes out of this. And then, and then you really understand, oh, but you really can't cut that scene because that's the only way you're ever going to know that they hate each other. <laughs> okay, so that scene stays. But once you start doing that and you dissect a bunch of stuff and you backward, you sort of reverse engineer episodes of shows you will suddenly see things emerge. And like, like, like if we could you know, take the, 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 the walls down and you'd see girders. And you're like, oh my God, that's, that's what's holding this place up. That's huge. I think, I, I think it's great advice, Jane. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, learning all of that is so crucial and it's a very complicated form, uh, like narrative, um, with images and sound and everything. From the perspective of writing the blueprints for those forms, I think it's really, really crucial if you can. And it's surprising that not everyone does this. I mean, I encounter a lot of people who aren't, don't seem to be actively doing this, professional working people. It's, you take what you consider to be your little particle of awareness. So you're writing a character who's just dug up a grave and he's driving back to a hotel, and like it's three in the morning. Like, you take your particle of awareness and you be that person. Like, try to be in their chair. Try to drive. Like, what is it to be? Fuck! You've been driving for sixteen hours. It's three in the morning. You just has to, had to dig up a grave, right? You still have this. When you walk to the car, there was crunchy in in the treads of your shoes from the dirt that made you think about how many other graves you've had to dig up. I mean, like, just be there in those, because 
that is writing. Yeah. Writing is putting yourself into other people's places you, and using every scrap of your observational capacity to, like, to empathize with what it is and live in details. If you want to be a writer, I've had this, we talked about it last night. So. My version of being a writer was like growing up with like an electron scanning gun in the back of my head, like the way they make a cathode ray tube. And all it did was shoot horrible scenarios in front of my eyes. <laughs> uh, enjoy your bus ride home. Your parents have been murdered. Um, like, uh, and, and, and look at it. Look at the blood. Oh, there's a tooth on the toaster oven. Like, um, like, where, whose tooth is that? Mom? Dad? Who had a filling? Like, and you're just like, what? Those are, that's, that's writing. Like, be there. I, and then, I, yes, yeah, yeah, and be, we'll, be raised as a frightened, neurotic child. <laughs> <laughs> Catastrophic thinking will be your ticket to Hollywood. If it's I, too old, do it to your kids. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I wasn't specifically going to talk about the tooth on the toaster. But, <laughs> I knew you'd get there. But, <laughs> one of the things that I, we were talking about that I think is really important is, if you're going to be a writer, uh, yeah, watch TV, dissect TV, learn TV. Uh, and then do what our mothers made us do when we were kids. Get the hell out of the house. Yeah. Um, and live a life. You know, don't, don't let your writing become that thing that you saw on Courtship of Eddie's yeah. Father. You know, go and travel and see the world and talk awesome to people. Awesome reference. <laughs> and, and talk to people and learn about cultures and read books and, and get out from in front of the TV and, and experience and observe. And the more you live and the more you, you suck the marrow out of life, to use that cliche, <laughs> Uh, the more you'll be able to, to, to go like, oh, yeah, I remember that time I, where I had the pebble in my pants. Right. Oh, in my, in my pants. Very, same thing, different stories. Um, but, you know, I, the, that day I was driving and I was exhausted. I had been driving for 16 days and there was only one station that would come on the radio and all they were playing was the fucking Eagles and I hated it. <laughs> and you, you lived that. You put that into a script and the script now feels lived in and real. Yes. And those little fragments of familiarity especially in genre which comes down to a lot of what was said before it's like the familiarity and the plight and the the being in a place that can be translated to the cockpit of a spaceship or to a coffin while you wait for the sun to go down or whatever the hell you're doing yeah, write from life and write for your life. Write what you would want to see. I think too often people go, what would sell? What do people want to see? Don't yeah. worry about what people want to see. Worry about what you want to see. I, that's a, a good point. I always go back to, a, I read this interview with James Cameron where they asked him, uh, how did you start coming up with aliens? And he said, I wrote the movie I wanted to see as a 13-year-old. Yeah. And it, that's very important. You must write what you want to see. You must make the you must please yourself first as an audience member. Whenever I get stuck writing, I always try to sit back and say, "Okay, what are the scenes I most want to see?" And I do this practice sometimes if I'm getting stuck on a, on something where I'll take like a piece of trailer music I've downloaded and then I'll put on my headphones and I'll walk and I'll imagine the trailer of mm. what I'm writing and that'll get me excited I'll run back to the computer and be like this is going to be awesome <laughs> it's going to be amazing so you must please yourself as an audience member that's the best way to write that's great thank you uh, I'm sorry guys that is all the time we have <laughs> yeah I know <laughs> uh, I'm sorry yeah we took too long you, <laughs> there are a lot of you there are a lot of you uh, but I'm sure I mean some of us have to run off to other uh, panels but you should accost these guys as soon as they walk out the door uh, <laughs> Please give a round of applause to our panelists.
Jeff Davis, Jane Espenson, Richard Haddam, Jose Molina, and Ben Edlin. Thank you guys for being here. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.